Here's what the word of God says in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they, are, when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together. Lord, you are high and holy, and you tell us that you dwell with those who are lowly and the contrite, with those who tremble at your word. We thank you for the grace of you, the one who inhabits heaven and eternity coming now to meet with us. And we pray that you would make our hearts fit to meet with you and to hear from you. Help us by your Holy Spirit to tremble at your word, to be shown the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as your spirit has moved upon Isaiah to write these words. We ask for your help, triune God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe some of you heard about a recent cultural trend about a few months ago called, How Often Do Men Think About the Roman Empire? Apparently, someone discovered that men think about the Roman Empire a lot more than women do. And they were surprised by this. And so people started to just go and ask all, all these men in their lives, how much do you think about the Roman Empire? And so it just became this cultural trend and question. People think about the Roman Empire because it was so great and because its fall was so great. 
The Roman Empire still has a great influence on our society. We have a calendar based on it. We have government, like the Senate, based on it. We have architecture, still based on architecture that's thousands of years old. We have words that you probably speak every day, and you don't even realize that they come from words coined during the time of the Roman Empire. And if you live in central New York, you might especially think about the Roman Empire even more because you have towns and cities like Rome, New York, and Utica, and Cicero, and many, many more. So the Roman Empire had a lot of influence, but it also had a great fall. Augustine wrote this magnum opus, this great book called The City of God, because uh, the fall of the Roman Empire seemed to them like the world was ending, like all of society was crumbling because it was so great, how could it also fall? And so it still apparently makes an impact on people today. People still think about this great fall of this empire. Well, in Isaiah's day, there was a different great empire. Before the great Roman Empire, there was Assyria. Of course, Assyria wasn't quite as big as, as Rome, but if we were to live at that time, we would be in awe of just how mighty, expansive, and powerful the Assyrian Empire was. It would fall later on to Babylon, but in Isaiah's day, it's great. And so, as we saw last week, everyone was thinking about the Assyrian Empire. Day after day, everyone had on their minds, what is Assyria doing? And what are they going to do next? The nation of Israel, uh, the north and the south, and the kingdom of Judah, they're, the kingdom of Judah especially is in a panic we saw at the end of chapter 8. They are afraid of what's going to happen because everyone knows that eventually this great empire is coming to conquer them. And so we saw last time that God wanted them to go to the law and to the testimony. And by doing so, they would not fear this great empire, but they would fear the Lord. The Lord would be their dread. They would honor him as holy. And that's how they were to cope with this great threat that was upon them. And then Isaiah, in this chapter, at least the first seven verses, he starts to paint a picture for them, for the people to think about another great kingdom. As they're always surrounded by the threat of Assyria, as their thoughts are always filled with the greatness of this human empire, Assyria, uh, Isaiah, sorry, paints a picture for them with words of a different kingdom. He wants their thoughts to be drawn to that kingdom. And this is what God wants for us as we see the world continuing to crumble around us as society crumbles, as nations crumble. Another way that you fear God, don't live in the fear of what's going to happen, of what's crumbling around you, 
Another way for you to do that is to have your mind focused on a greater kingdom. A kingdom that in one sense has come and that still is coming in its fulfillment. And so we want to look at Isaiah's word picture here in these seven verses about this new kingdom and set our hearts and our hopes on this kingdom. So we could say that Isaiah describes this kingdom as a new light. He describes the new kingdom then in verses 4 and 5, and then he describes a new king in verses 6 and 7. So first, he tells us about a new light in the first three verses. He starts out in verse 1, notice with the words gloom and anguish. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Before he tells us about the light that's coming, he tells us about how things are dark. Now he, he's sort of in the future talking about the day when there is no gloom or anguish, but that must mean that something has happened. They have been in this gloom and anguish. And those words should connect you right back to the verse right up above it. In chapter 8, verse 22, talking about those who go after the, the wizards and the witches and the sorcery, it says, they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So Isaiah is telling us that these people who live in fear of what's going to happen around them, they are going to be facing the gloom of anguish and this thick darkness. And now in verse 1, He's telling us, he's describing it as if it has already happened. So in a sense, prophetically, even though this hasn't happened in Isaiah's life yet, he's sort of looking forward in his prophecy to when these events have already taken place. Remember the threat of Assyria. The threat that Assyria was going to come and destroy the northern kingdom and Syria and was eventually going to come for the kingdom of Judah. Well, that's what's happened. Assyria did come. Assyria did defeat the northern kingdom. Assyria had invaded the capital there of Samaria. And so that's what he's talking about here in verse 1. That's the gloom and the anguish. It's the destruction and the invasion and the loss of everything that they had, the loss of their homeland. So he goes on in verse 1 to say, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So the former time is that time when Assyria did invade. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali is that northern kingdom, the land of Galilee. And so he goes on to describe this. But in the latter time, talking about the good news, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So he's talking about the land of Galilee. He calls it Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles uh, because this was a place where uh, there were many Gentiles mixed in with the Jews. This is the part of the north 
northern part of the, the nation of Israel. And so this would be one of the first places when all the enemies would come and attack. And so they would come, they would invade as they are maybe going down to Egypt or attacking a place in Israel. And they would often first attack in the land of Galilee. And so many settlements were there, many uh, uh, encampments of, of the military, many takeovers. And so over the centuries, over years and years and years, you would have Assyrians and Babylonians and Romans and Greeks, and they would all over time be intermarrying and intermixing with the Jews that lived there, settling there. And so Isaiah calls it Galilee of the Gentiles, sort of like New York City. As New, York, New York City is there on the coast and it's got Ellis Island and everybody immigrating from Europe is going to come to Ellis Island, going to come to New York City. And so New York City becomes a place full of all sorts of cultures and ethnicities. That's what happened with Galilee. Except it wasn't voluntary migration. It was forced by war. And so it's in this land that the Assyrians come and attack. And so Isaiah describes this as gloom, anguish, darkness, in verse 2, and then deep darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. He calls it deep darkness because this is the place where God brings his judgment. Assyria, as we're going to see in chapter 10, Assyria was just God's tool to bring judgment on the people of Israel. This invasion is a result of the curse of God. So I think we have a good reason to apply this to ourselves as we think about the curse of God upon the world that we live in. What happened in the northern kingdom of Israel is just a picture of what's happened to the whole world. All the world is under God's curse because of sin. God sends his judgment upon the world because we rebel against him, because we sin against him. In Genesis 1, verse 2, it says, the waters of darkness were there, and God shone his light over the waters of of the deep darkness. And he created the world in, in six days, and then we could say that the darkness, or the, the light, in a sense, only lasted uh, those few days, just a little while. Because soon after God created the world, darkness came on the world again. Not a physical darkness, but a spiritual one. It's when Adam and Eve sinned, they plunged the world again into deep darkness. So all of us live under, you could say, this cloud, this specter of a dark cloud of the curse of God. All of us face death. All of us are decaying. All of us face pain and suffering and Sometimes it's because of our own personal sin, but many times it's just because we 
are living in this broken, fallen world that we contribute our sin to. We live under deep darkness. Apparently, some people, are, scientists, are trying to figure out how to grow plants in the dark. They want to learn how to do artificial photosynthesis so that they can grow plants in the space station or eventually take plants to another planet where they can begin to grow those plants. But as you can imagine, uh, although they seem to be having some success, it's not really very easy to grow plants in the dark. Darkness and green don't work so well together. But we could say that there's a sense in which that's also what we're trying to do. You're trying to live your life under this cloud of darkness. You're trying to grow as a Christian. And you're constantly plagued by suffering and sin. And a lot of it is your own sin. We're trying to be a church that honors God and glorifies God and tries to grow in Christ. And yet it's all under the specter of darkness, suffering, and sin. We're trying to have families, raising families and raising children with sinful parents and sinful children. And we're trying to grow green plants in a home covered in darkness. We all dwell in this deep darkness in this sense. That sounds a little disheartening. But the good news is, verse 2 tells us, that those people have seen a great light. That those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. Verse 2 tells us about the grace of God. Darkness can't create light. You can't make light come out of darkness. It's just impossible. Light has to shine upon darkness. Just again, as it was in Genesis, God shone his light upon the darkness. The darkness didn't just make itself light. It was the kindness of God to create the world. It's the grace of God to bring light to darkness. All of our hearts are darkened as we enter into this world. It's the grace of God that shines light into our hearts to show the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we understand the good news of who Christ is. And it's this great light that has come through Jesus Christ. Matthew tells us that verse 2, verses 1 and 2 are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of Matthew, after Matthew tells us about the birth of Jesus and the baptism of Jesus and uh, the temptation of Jesus, Matthew then in chapter 4 begins to write about Jesus' ministry. And he tells us the first thing after Jesus is tempted and the way that Matthew tells the story is as Jesus begins his ministry, the first thing he does is that he moves out of his hometown, Nazareth. And we know that he wasn't very welcome in his hometown, Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is in Galilee. So Jesus is from Galilee. Jesus is from the land that was under deep darkness. 
But Matthew wants to point out to us that Jesus makes it a point to leave Nazareth and go further north to a town called Capernaum. And Jesus sets up his home base, so to speak. His, his new home is Capernaum. And he goes to Capernaum because that is the place that is of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Jesus moves there because he has come to fulfill verses 1 and 2. Jesus has come to bring light to the land that dwelt in deep darkness. As someone who has moved to New York, I hear a lot of people a bit puzzled as to why I would move to New York. And a lot of people often talk about moving south. People who live in north, the north, often want to move south. Part of the problem for some people is the winter, which includes darkness. Not just cold, but the darkness can, can get you down. And so a lot of people want to leave the darkness. Jesus physically moved north. Jesus physically moved to the land that Isaiah describes as deep darkness. But more importantly, Jesus is making a spiritual statement. Just like sometimes people will speak spiritually. If I, if I meet maybe another pastor somewhere from the south usually, they'll say, New York, that's a really dark place. And what they mean is that it's a spiritually dark place. And it's kind of interesting. <laughs> so, why would you live in a spiritually dark place? Well, I mean, isn't that the point? Isn't that what the gospel is for? Isn't that why, why Christ, what Christians are supposed to do? Not that everybody has to live in the spiritually dark places, but this is what Christians do. This is what Jesus literally himself did. He, he moves into the land that is spiritually darker. He moves to Galilee of the Gentiles, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so Matthew says all this. And he says, Jesus did this to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Matthew is trying to make the point that this is what Jesus has come to do. It's not just about the physical location of his home, but that Jesus' mission is to bring light into the great darkness. This is why Christ came, to save the world from sin. And so, as a result of what Jesus has done, we have verse 3. Notice how it's uh, spoken in the past as if it's already happened, but uh, it hadn't happened yet for Isaiah. But verse 3, this is the result. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And so the result of, of the grace of God moving into the darkness, fulfilled in the person of Jesus, is the reversal of the curse that had come under the kingdom of Assyria. The nation had been decimated, taken into exile, many of them, but instead they are now multiplied. 
The nation had been driven into sadness and despair, but now they have increased their joy. He says they joy like the joy of the harvest. Oftentimes in the Bible, they use imagery from uh, the harvest to describe war. They battle is described as trampling upon grapes. The bloodbath is symbolized by the people who tread on the grapes at the harvest to get their wine. So Israel experienced a bloodbath, but now they have a joy of something like the real harvest. The joy that they would experience when they had this huge harvest of grapes and they would be trampling the grapes. That's the kind of joy that they now have since the light has come. It says they are glad when they, as if someone is dividing the spoil. Maybe you remember this word for spoil. It's shalal. Isaiah had said that Assyria would come and quickly plunder, quickly spoil. Maher Shalal was the name of Isaiah's son because that's what would happen. But now the reverse has happened. Now they have joy as if they're the ones with the spoil. So God has reversed their fortunes. God has shown light where there was darkness. Because God came to Galilee. Jesus Christ came to bring his light. So Christians, brothers and sisters, as as you struggle through the dark world, as you wonder how you are possibly supposed to grow plants under darkness, how are you supposed to grow as a Christian in the midst of this world? How are you supposed to be faithful? Are you supposed to help a church be faithful or raise a family to be faithful? Remember that Christ has come. Christ's light has shined. Christ can shine his light upon this dark world and this is what he is doing as he's bringing his kingdom. And so this is what we read more about next and how he's bringing his kingdom. In verses 4 and 5, it describes what this kingdom is like. So first, notice the word for. Verses 4, 5, and 6 use that word for all describing how this joy is going to happen, how this light is coming, and in what way it's going to be displayed. The light is coming because a kingdom is coming. A new government is coming. A new regime is coming on the scene. So verses 4 and 5. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So verse 4 especially is describing a, a new government. There was a burden upon the people, a yoke, 
uh, the staff and the rod, all of those are, are things that a king would have. They, they represent the king's authority. And so the nation of Assyria, in, in a literal sense, their, their authority over the kingdoms of Israel and Judah were a burden upon them. Uh, Assyria, with their uh, scare tactics, they, they would make all these nations pay taxes to them. And basically you can tax them as much as you want because the only option is uh, death or pay taxes. So if you don't pay your taxes, you get killed. So, so they decide they're, they're going to take all the taxes that they want from you. And so over decades and decades and centuries sometimes, the, the nations keep falling apart. They keep crumbling. They, they have no money. Not to mention then Assyria comes and still invades and still fights battles and still uh, kills their people. So this is the oppression, the government oppression, as the government uh, puts its thumb down on them and reduces them to practically nothing. But this oppression will be broken. In the literal sense, God broke the oppression of Assyria. He would break the oppression of Babylon later. He would remove their governments from uh, forcing their, uh, pushing their thumb down on them. He says it would be broken as on the day of Midian, the day when uh, Gideon and his 300 soldiers were able to uh, fight against the Midianites, a battle that took place there in the northern kingdom. And so the mention of Midian is like a remember the Alamo kind of phrase. Remember Midian. God's going to do this again. Notice again the past tense doesn't mean that it's already actually happened for them, but Isaiah is talking about it as if it has already happened. This is what God has done. It's a certainty that God will do this. God will remove Assyria from oppressing them. God will rescue them. And verse 5, God will end war. There will be no need for military boots or uniforms no camos in the new kingdom uh, because all of the military uniforms soaked in blood will be burned, thrown into a giant bonfire. No need for that because there's no more war. So in the literal sense, this is talking about the burden of Assyria. But just like in the other verses before that, we can also say that because Assyria represents the curse and the judgment of God, we can also talk about this yoke on the shoulders, the oppression that weighs down on the people as a, as a symbol of the effects of sin. There's a government that the sin, that sin has upon us. Paul says in Romans 6, sin will no longer have dominion over you. Dominion or government. Sin governs you. For the unbeliever, and when you come into this world, when you're born, you are under the dominion, the rule, and the government of sin. And so, sinners sin. We continue in our sin. We find it hard to break off the yoke of our sin. We find it hard to break habits and patterns of sin. And unbelievers, 
continue to sin and sin, and sometimes they don't even know why. Sometimes they don't even know that they're doing it. They do it even though it ruins their lives. Their lives are falling apart. They continue getting deeper and deeper into their sin, and yet there's absolutely nothing that they can do to stop it because they are under the yoke, under the oppression and the dominion of this power of sin. They have a sort of false patriotism towards their government, the governor, the dominion of sin. Sometimes, you know, I, you read these news stories about uh, people in Russia who are, you know, defending certain things that uh, Russia is doing, and they, like, think certain things are great. It's a, it's a very misplaced, it's a very false sense of patriotism. And spiritually, in a sense, there, there are many people like that, loving their sin, defending their sin, even knowing that they're, they might be doing some things wrong, and yet they continue to excuse and justify, and they can't get out of it. This is the dominion that unbelievers are under. But this is part of the gospel. That Paul says in Romans 6, a person can be dead to sin. Sin does not have dominion over the believer. The oppression is broken. The yoke is broken off. It's the only possible way for you to be freed from the power of sin. It's through the gospel. Through the work of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when you trust in Jesus Christ, he gives you the spirit to give you a new nature and to change you. And Christians need to understand that they have dominion over sin. Sin does not have dominion over you, Christian. I think sometimes Christians uh, give sin too much credit, live too much under the government of sin. Think that maybe because we have fallen natures or we're, we're totally depraved, that, that just means all, all I'm ever going to do for the rest of my life is sin and living under the defeat of sin and not realizing that there is a power to overcome it. Not perfectionism, not that you will achieve sinlessness, but there is power that has already been broken to break off the shackles of sin, and you can overcome sin in your life if you are a Christian with the Holy Spirit. Not all sin, but you can have power over sin. This is the yoke that is broken. This is the new kingdom that we live under. And then finally, we find out that we have a new king, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah announces a new king. He says in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're familiar with announcements of births 
Uh, a few weeks ago, a pastor stood up in the pulpit and announced that a baby had been born to someone in our church. Lord willing, we'll have more of those. We understand the birth announcements. Sometimes people will send out pictures. They get those professional photographs of the baby somehow asleep with the bow on their head, and they send out the picture to everyone with the name and the weight. A baby has been born. It's a time of joy. Everybody is happy. Everybody's excited. We know we live in a dark world. We know we live in a world full of suffering. We know that it's not even uh, something we can take for granted that a healthy baby is born. And so we rejoice. It brings great joy when babies are born. This is a birth announcement. That's, that's basically all it comes down to. Isaiah is announcing a child has been born. It's a boy. A son has been given. But it's not just any baby. It's a royal baby. The government will be on his shoulder. He's going to be a king. We're also familiar with royalty. People in America, for some reason, they, they love the royal family of the United Kingdom. Uh, people woke up really early some time ago to, to watch a wedding that was taking place in the United Kingdom. People want to know uh, who's marrying who and and when one of them has a baby, the, I guess the baby gets plastered all over the, the whatever, the websites or the magazines or whatever, and, and everybody announces, George has been born. Prince William has a baby. And so Prince William will probably be King William. And then probably King William will give way to King George, this little baby, and the royal family of the United Kingdom, this baby is going to be a king. Well, imagine that Buckingham Palace is in ruins. Buckingham Palace is just a bunch of rubble. Imagine that the United Kingdom is the divided kingdom. Wales and Scotland and England, they've all been warring with each other and they've reduced themselves to, to being weak nations. And so a wedding took place in front of Buckingham Palace as it was in ruins. And then later on, eventually, an announcement came. George, Prince George, has been born. It would bring more hope. It would bring more meaning in that kind of context to hear that this baby was born, to hear that although things look like destruction all around, uh, there's a little bit of hope. Hope is in this baby who'd be a king. That's what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is looking around at that point where people are panicking about the destruction of the nation. Eventually, the nation would be destroyed. People would later read Isaiah's prophecy and they would look at the ruins all around them. They would look at how King Zedekiah 
gets taken away into Babylon and gets his eyes plucked out. And there's no hope for the kingdom at that point. What kind of monarchy is this? What kind of monarchy continues to be under the rule of Babylon and Greece and the Roman Empire? And they're reading Isaiah's words, but he, he's speaking again in the past tense. This king has been given. God is going to do this. He's going to give a son, and this son will have the government upon his shoulders. I, I look around and I see my nation in ruins. I see my nation continuing to be oppressed by the Romans. But I have hope. Because Isaiah said this would happen. And then you hear the announcement. The angels proclaim, a baby has been born. A son has been given. A gift of God. Just as Isaiah says in chapter 8 about his own children in verse 18, given by God. This child has been given as a gift from God, but in an even more special way, God gave this son. God so loved the world that he gave his son to the world. And now that son is here in the form of a baby, baby boy in the manger of Bethlehem. The government will be on his shoulders. That's a statement that he's king, but, but notice the contrast with the word shoulder in verse 4 and verse 6. The staff of oppression of the other government is upon our shoulders. The government of the nation is placed upon his shoulder. There is an idea here of substitution. That's why I think he uses the exact same word. He, he's telling us that this boy, this king, is going to take something upon himself. He's going to take the burden upon his own shoulders. So it's not a direct prophecy of the cross that Jesus would carry upon his shoulders. That's what some of the early church fathers, they would make that into an allegory, that this is an allegory of the cross. But, but it's an indirect prophecy an indirect explanation that this king will bear the burdens of the people as the substitute. And so that is fulfilled at the cross. It's not because he carries a cross on his shoulders, but because he puts sin upon his shoulders. He puts the dominion of sin that is on the people and it gets placed upon him. And he pays this debt, and he breaks the power of the sin because it's placed on him, and he pays the debts. He pays the wrath of God that we deserve. This king will have names, Isaiah goes on to say. Four names, uh, they aren't literally what his name is on his birth certificate, but they are four things that he will be called. 
Four titles, you could say. First, wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. People will look at him and they will say, wonderful counselor. The word wonder here is a noun. It is used in the Old Testament to describe the signs and wonders that God does. Like in Egypt, when he sends the plagues, he does wonders. And we often sing about great wonders that God has done. That's the noun that is used here. That you will look at this son, this king, and you will see him as a wonder. You will be in awe of him. And he is wonder in the sense of his counsel. He is a counselor. Now, when we think about that word counselor, we probably think about biblical counseling, psychotherapy, psychology, uh, guidance counselors at school, or going to a pastor for pastoral counsel. And so you think of a counselor as someone who gives advice. So is Jesus a a wonderful man that you go to and he dispenses wonderful advice to you? Well, that's true, but that's not what Isaiah is telling us about him. The word counsel has to do with the counsel of a king. What a king does is he plans, strategizes. Maybe some of you uh, had uh, played a video game, uh, some sort of game where maybe you had to run a city. You're the mayor of the city and you got to protect the city. You have police and you have to have a library and and parks and hospitals and all these things. And and it's the whole game of strategizing how you can make all of these things happen. Well, that's what a king did. He has his counsel, his plans of how to run his kingdom the best way. That's what Isaiah is talking about. The awe of his counsel. What Ephesians 1 verse 11 talks about. How he works all things according to the counsel of his will. In a majestic way. This king is running and organizing his kingdom in the perfect way. That's what Christians need to know. This is what you need to believe as a Christian. The King, the Lord Jesus, loves his church. He loves his people. He loves the Christian. And he's doing all of these mysterious, hard to understand things. But it's a wonderful counsel. It's a perfect will that he is working out for the good of his people. And the more we understand about it, when we get to heaven, we'll probably understand more. We will be in awe of his counsel. About how God brought you to here through all of these things he was doing in your life. 
The king is a wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. Mighty, meaning that he is a warrior. God means that he's God. People who aren't Christians will try all kinds of ways to get around what those words are saying about how this king can't possibly be God. Well, he must be representing God, just kind of in the place of God, or, or uh, it's not really talking about him, it's talking about, somebody, it's talking about God, Yahweh, you know. Flip over to chapter 10, verse 21. It uses the exact same words. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Not a remnant will return to someone who stands in the place of God. Not a remnant who will return to to some other human king. A remnant returns to the mighty God. Who is that mighty God? It's the baby born in chapter 9. There is no way to get around this claim that this human being will also be recognized as God. As we go through Isaiah, it becomes more and more clear who this person is. Chapter 7, verse 14, this baby called Emmanuel, God with us, that becomes more clear here now in chapter 9. You could have just said, oh, yeah, well, God's going to be with us, and I know God's going to be with us because he gave a baby. And now it's like, no, no, God is with you. Like, he's really with you. Literally, he is with you. Because this baby is the mighty God. And we'll find out more and more, more links to unfold who this king is. And that's why we know that eventually we come to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the mighty God. Next, he's called the everlasting father. Everlasting means no end. Father can, uh, well, it's not referring to uh, him as being the exact same person as the father. So this is not a statement about the Trinity. Uh, The son is the father. No, the son is not the father. Uh, The father is God. The son is God. The son is not the father. The father is not the son. That's what the Trinity means. So what does it mean when it calls him the everlasting father? Well, think about it as the work of the king. We talk about George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, founding fathers. Founding fathers mean they were the leaders of the country at the beginning. And so this new kingdom will have a founding father. This new kingdom will have this new king, and he will be the father of the kingdom. And we saw last week that uh, Jesus is like the second Adam. He's the father of this whole new human race of all the citizens of the kingdom. Not physically descended from him, but spiritually. He is the federal head of the new covenant, just like uh, King David was the head of the covenant of David. Now, just like Adam was the head of his covenant, and everybody was uh, united to Adam, died in Adam, you'll now live in Christ because Christ is the father, in that sense, of 
the new covenant people. That's what it means to call him everlasting father. And then finally, he's the prince of peace. Prince just means that he's a king. Peace, we'll go, we'll go on to explain, is in verse 7. And we'll talk more about it in chapter 11. As we come to the last verse in verse 7, I want to focus on just on the word increase. Chapter 11 is going to be further explaining the kingdom and the government of what that will look like. But notice verse 7 says this king will be on his kingdom and the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Remember that his government is increasing. For us now the king has already come. We know it's Jesus. His government is increasing. It's increasing on this earth as the church is like the the mustard seed that gets planted and becomes the tallest of the trees with many branches. The kingdom of God is spreading across this earth. The kingdom of God will come to its fulfillment. The gospel is going forth. We can pray with confidence We can share the gospel with confidence because we know that that even though there is so much suffering and tribulation and persecution, the kingdom is spreading. And I think we can even say there's a sense in which there will be no end to the increase of his government. C.S. Lewis used this image in the last battle And a phrase he used, further up and further in. As the kids were going to this main area in what's basically the kingdom, they said this phrase, further up and further in. And Lewis kind of describes that whole kingdom as a sort of endless place, endless exploration. I'm not saying necessarily that that's like what the kingdom of heaven is like, that that it'll just go on physically to infinity and that you'll always have places to explore. Uh, I'm not saying that. I don't know that for sure. But I think we can say it in this way, that the love of God is endless and that for eternity upon eternity, we will keep learning about the love of God The knowledge of who God is, is infinite. And so for eternity upon eternity, we will be growing in our understanding of who God is. And so heaven is a place of going from perfect to new perfections, to new perfections, to always be experiencing his love and his grace in a new way in an increased way. It's like your heart just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it's always full, but it keeps getting bigger and bigger with love for God. Paul will say, quoting Isaiah, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, 
No heart can imagine what God has in store for those who love him. The increase of his peace and of his government over our lives is unimaginable. We can't imagine something so great and how it could never end but grow into new and new perfections for eternity. We live in a dark world. We have many reasons to be discouraged, many struggles in our own personal lives, and as we look at everything crumbling around us, this is the picture we need to have. For us, the King has come. We know who he is. Each of you needs to know him personally and then set your hopes on that day to come. The king will finally come and bring his kingdom. And you will be part of a perfect world. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this for you and me. Let's pray. God, we praise you for what you have given by grace alone, that you have given your Son. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for being the rightful and righteous and just and good King. Lord, we pray that you would help us to know you, to take your yoke upon us, your yoke that is easy and your burden that is light. Lord, we pray that you would set our hearts upon these promises of the future, that we would look towards this day as we grow weary and discouraged at what we see around us. We ask for these things by the help of your Holy Spirit. We pray through our King, the Lord Jesus. Amen.